I wouldn't call him a leader of the settlement movement, although he was that as well, as much as a leader of the religious Zionist movement and someone who really exemplified Havat uh, Israel, you know, loving every Jew and actually loving every person for who they were. He certainly had a political uh, bent to him. He had served in the Knesset, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But he actually lived a lot of the religious Zionist movement uh, on his own flesh. He was in Olaf from Poland. He studied in the Merkaz Arab Yeshiva with Rabbi Cook's son, Tzuyuda Cook. He uh, helped found some of the Hezder Yeshivas, which combined Yeshiva study, traditional Yeshiva study with uh, army service. He, as I mentioned, he was he served in the Knesset mm-hmm. as part of the traditional religious Zionist party. It doesn't exist anymore, the Mafdal. And uh, he created yeshivas. He, in an area that I think really will stand out for the long term in terms of his contribution, he helped create and lead the conversion authority of the state of Israel, which tried to provide some sort of response to uh, the immigration of hundreds of thousands of immigrants who came on Aliyah under the law of return, but who weren't halachically Jewish. And uh, in his last years of his life, in addition to just being a wonderful man, he also uh, was a political broker in many respects, or some might argue a kingpin, in terms of uh, helping broker deals with the religious Zionist movement and the existing government. A lot of the eulogies being spoken about him today talk about his love and his friendship, and he never had a bad word for people. I know you, people say nice things at funerals, but he seemed to be, this was his character. He, he, he really had a lot of uh, love coming out of him. For anybody who, who he certainly, loved Israel. He certainly had a lot of Avat Israel. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, my, my personal encounters with him, you know, I met him in the 80s, but then in the early 2000s when he took over the conversion authority of the state of Israel, you know, he was willing to do a lot, particularly for individual converts. He was less successful, in my humble opinion, in organizing a systemic solution. Mm. In other words, when he saw a convert in front of him, he was able to do that. And I can even speak from personal experience. Uh, it's a story that hasn't been told till now, but I'm starting to tell it today, which okay. is that even though he was uh, outspoken in his uh, uh, he was outspoken in terms of bolstering the the sovereign conversion authority, that is the conversion authority run by the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And when I began together with a number of rabbis, uh, an independent conversion network uh, in about five or six years ago, he was outspoken against it. He felt like conversion shouldn't be done uh, alongside that of the chief rabbinate. But I can tell you that he personally turned to us, our organization is called Itim Bjur Kalachan, he turned to us to help him convert individuals who he felt couldn't convert through the National Conversion Authority. So you had someone who was outspoken against uh, a conversion program, right, a, a right. rabbinical court, if you will. But on a personal level, he used our conversion court when he could. He felt like he could help people. Well, it has and, to be mentioned that he, his conversions were annulled and then later on reinstated. So again, his conversions in the National Authority, uh, this is one of my you know, major interactions, his conversions in the National Authority, were questioned by the by individual rabbis, and in fact, my organization, E Team, ended up taking the rabbinate to the Supreme Court to defend Rabbi Druckmann's conversion, mm-hmm. and we were very successful. Again, at the time, there was a lot of attention around the issue: was it is it fair, is it legitimate to go to the Supreme Court to sue the Israeli rabbinate? But in the end, uh, it had a very very positive outcome, which is that all the conversions that he had performed were certified by the courts and ultimately by the rabbinate as well. I want to talk more about that later, but I want to ask you, you know, uh, Rabbi Druckmann, he called for the annexation of Judea and Samaria. He called for Israeli soldiers to refuse orders to dismantle the Gaza Strip, the Gush Katif settlements. He also I, advocated for Jewish religious law to govern the state of Israel. 
Look, he, he, there were some sides of him that I think were a little blinded by his ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and some of the examples you gave, again, you have to look at them in the times they were, they were said and in the context in which they were said. But I, I do, I don't uh, pretend that there weren't sides of him that uh, I didn't agree with or I didn't uh, have uh, major issues with. I think uh, it's what we call, and he was a machlok at l'shem shamay, it was a debate for the sake of heaven. Mm-hmm. But again, some of those issues, and again, I could list others as well, that I felt that he was just making, you know, he made fundamental errors. One of the wonderful things about the religious Zionist movement is that, uh, and I'm a proud member, is that we don't, we don't feel our leadership is infallible. And there is, there is a very, very... Uh, healthy and robust sense of disagreeing with your leadership. And in fact, Rabbi Drucken himself, one of the things that really stood out about him was in his younger years, he really, really stood out by being uh, somewhat controversial in terms of fighting with some of his rabbinic leadership of the time. He did break from them in certain times, and uh, I think that's important to note. He was someone who ended up working from the outside of the establishment and ultimately becoming the ultimate insider. Wow. So you mentioned conversions. What do you think about some of the changes the incoming coalition partners are trying to seek now, like the law of return or discrimination bills? Yeah, so I'm very, very uncomfortable and concerned. I'm waiting for all the dust to settle, settle that's the truth, and we'll know better where we stand in another week or two. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has gone on the record saying that he's not going to allow some of these fundamentalist changes to, or incoming Prime Minister Netanyahu, I should say, should is not going to allow all some or many of these uh, fundamentalist uh, changes or reforms to to take effect. Again, we have to see how the dust settles. I'm particularly concerned about the expansion of the power of the chief rabbinate. Now they're talking about the chief rabbis appointing uh, the rabbis and uh, the chief rabbi of the army. They're talking about the chief rabbis having a complete monopoly on conversion in Israel. Mm-hmm. These are things that I think undermine the Zionist narrative and the religious Zionist narrative. And I think uh, it's a small group of fundamentalists that are speaking against the, number one, what the majority wants, and number two, against the greater needs of uh, the state of Israel. And I think that's, a, that's an irony. I think in general, over the, over the many years, uh, the religious Zionists played an important role in the government. They always spoke for, on behalf of Klai Yisrael. And Rabbi Drickman's a good example of that. They looked for areas where they could impact on Klai Yisrael. And now they're very, very myopic, in my humble opinion, and they are, uh, I think they could cause a lot of damage. More importantly, I think they're doing a disservice to Judaism, and I think this is a very important where these people, some of the fundamentalists, speak in the name of Judaism, and I think they're not reflecting uh, authentic Jewish values to the extent there are authentic Jewish values. Jewish values, more than anything else, are based on debate and discussion mm-hmm. and uh, ironing out issues and not suggesting I'm right to the exclusion of everybody else, and I think that's what you're hearing a lot of today. And again, the issue about the you know doctors not having to service their patients is just a good example of someone who's claiming that's within Jewish tradition, and it fundamentally isn't. It really isn't. Well, the general message here is that the, it's a struggle of who is a Jew, and, and there are two trends, and maybe even secular Israelis are, are becoming more interested in tradition, but this draconian approach is going to be alienating a lot of Israelis. Right. So I'm used to dealing with uh, a team you know, thousands of Jews a year, more than 5,000 people turn to us a year who feel alienated and disenfranchised mm-hmm. from the religious establishment. And I imagine that's going to go up as the religious, if the religious establishment, in fact, comes, uh, becomes, you know, more fundamentalist. I'll give you a good example. We just finished sitting on a two-year co- committee of the Ministry of Religious Affairs to plan, it's another area, not who is a Jew area, but to plan what burial is going to look like in Israel in, uh, in 2060. In other words, 40 years forward. And we were, we're working on a committee of 34 people, non-political, all people from all, all walks of life. And we represented the public. Uh, we from E-Team represented the public of this committee. The committee put its recommendations on the table of the cabinet on Thursday. 
by Sunday morning, there were already recommendations, there were already coalition agreements that contradict some of the recommendations we made in this day, in this, in this uh, broadside. Well, and it's really, it's really unfortunate that people have no sense that two, there was two years of professional work that was non-political that include members of the chief rabbinate to make recommendations about how burial should look. And now for someone's particular need there, or they don't see it exactly this way, instead of they're simply turning the clock back and it's a, it's an absurdity. So I'm very, very concerned, but I'm hopeful that uh, Israel is robust enough and strong enough and, uh, going in a good enough direction that even some of the things that are being talked about today um, won't get us off track. And again, I think what we really need to do now is start uh, changing the language. I think it has to be much less language of hatred Mm -hmm. and anger Mm -hmm. and I'm right and you're wrong and much more dialogue and consensus being built. Again, the present government doesn't demonstrate right now they're willing to do that, but I'm hopeful once things get settled, that we'll go back to that kind of tenor.